Hello, I'm Mary Osborne. I'm Kathy Shagrin. And I'm Stacia Matten. And we'd like to welcome you back for a second season of Prairie Tales, where each month we talk about this wonderful community we live in, Monmouth, Illinois. Mary, did you know that the city of Monmouth is the birthplace of fraternity Kappa Kappa Gamma? Well, yes, I did. Well, did you know that their mascot is an owl and the Florida is their symbol? Yes, I was aware. Did you know that the fraternity began as a desire by several local women in Monmouth to develop a women's fraternity for social development and now has 145 collegiate chapters? How do you know so much about Kappa Kappa Gamma? <laughs> well, well you know, I read it on the I read internet. It on the internet. Oh, moving on. Each month at Prairie Tales, we bring you a little slice of history from Monmouth's past with the help of local historians. Last year, we heard from many of you who listen, and we welcome your ideas for future programs. We also would like to recognize the Buchanan Center for the Arts, which sponsors our program as part of its mission to promote the arts in whatever form it takes in the Monmouth area. So, are we ready to begin? Absolutely. Well, get ready because it's season two of Prairie Tales. Warning, this episode contains graphic descriptions of child abuse. We don't shy away from difficult history on Prairie Tales, but rarely have our episodes dealt with a scandal of such magnitude. This tale explores the legal system's treatment of women, the care of orphans, and societal perceptions of the insane during the early 20th century. Join me for part one of the child cruelty trial of Mary L. McKinney. One spring day in 1905, teenager Lizzie White was passing the McKinney residence in Aledo, Illinois. She froze when she noticed Mrs. Mary McKinney beating her young ward and taunting her. White hurried on her way with Stella Grady's cries echoing in her ears. What Lizzie witnessed lent credibility to the rumors that had been circulating since last winter. Mary and her husband Archibald were torturing Stella. It seemed unthinkable that a prominent family like the McKinneys could be capable of such a crime. Archibald McKinney hailed from Mercer County, Illinois. His father, John McKinney, was born in Lincoln County, Kentucky in 1801. In 1832, he settled in what is now Henderson County, Illinois, where he farmed and eventually acquired 800 acres. In 1842, John moved to Oquaka to begin a career as a merchant. He also established a pork packing business. In 1873, he moved again to Alito and purchased a half interest in the Bank of Alito. By 1882, he became the sole owner of the bank. He died 10 years later. Archibald's mother, Mary Stewart McKinney, was the youngest daughter of the Reverend William K. Stewart. The Reverend Stewart was a Presbyterian minister and former chaplain to the Illinois General Assembly during the 1830s. Mary was also the aunt of Mary Minnie Moore Stewart Field, one of the founders of the women's fraternity Kappa Kappa Gamma. Mary Stewart and John McKinney were married on February 16, 1847. John was then a widower with six children. Together, Mary and John had seven children of their own, including Archibald, born in 1854, and James, who served as a U.S. representative from 1905 to 1913. Archibald, or Arch as he was known to his family, attended Monmouth College and law school in Chicago before taking over his father's business as a merchant and banker. Arch married Mary Loomis Faleo on November 10, 1886. The Faleos were a well-established family from Rock Island. Mary and Arch had four children, Helen, George, Hope, and Marion. 
When Helen was preparing to enter college, the McKinneys began to consider taking in a less fortunate child. They applied to the Illinois Children's Home and Aid Society, which identified 16-year-old Stella Grady for potential placement with the McKinneys. The concept of a children's aid society was relatively new. The purpose of these new societies was to find children stable homes. Up until the late 19th and early 20th centuries, it was not uncommon for children to be sent to county poor farms or asylums when they had nowhere else to go. In Illinois, children under 14 could be indentured without their consent beginning in 1845. Indentured girls typically attained their freedom when they turned 18 and boys at the age of 21. The Progressive Era, during which time our tale takes place, saw numerous reforms, including ones to improve children's welfare. Legislation at the state and federal levels ended or at least limited child labor. More children began to enter public schools, gaining access to free kindergartens, school lunches, and playgrounds. The conditions in orphanages and similar institutions were improving, albeit slowly. The number of orphanages in the United States began to increase after 1830. By 1888, there were over 600 orphanages or orphan asylums in the U.S. Some of these institutions permitted parents to surrender custody of their children for short periods of time. The managers of the Chicago Orphan Asylum, for example, allowed parents to leave their children for up to three months. Upon proving they could provide a stable home, parents could regain custody of their children. If not, they lost their parental rights. Full orphans and surrendered children were then placed with new families. Stella Grady's situation reflects the hardships facing many women in this era. Stella's father had abandoned the family. Newspapers covering the trial suggested he may have been an alcoholic. Left with six children to raise, Stella's mother relinquished custody of some or perhaps all of her children. Ideally, these children would have found loving families, but whether adoptive parents actually loved their wards was often irrelevant. Orphanage administrators regarded stability to be more important than love. Families expected children to earn their keep. Edward A. Hall noted at the 1890 Charities and Correction Conference that the beautiful, lovable homes we read about where people who are lying awake at nights ready to take to their hearts the undesirable children of society for the dear children's sake are few and far between. In fact, Archibald McKinney later testified that the contract with the Illinois Children's Home and Aid Society stipulated that Stella was to be a, quote, hired girl. Stella came to live with the McKinneys sometime in June 1904, and within a few months, rumors began to circulate that she was being abused. Archibald and Mary McKinney were indicted on a charge of torture in April 1905. Stella found refuge with a young woman named Margaret Gilmore when the Children's Aid Society removed her from the McKinney's home. Before a trial date could be set, Mary McKinney entered the new Sanger Brown Sanitarium in Kenilworth, outside Chicago. Physician Sanger Brown was born in Bloomfield, Ontario on February 16, 1852. He trained at Bellevue Medical Hospital in New York and graduated in 1880. Before founding his own sanitarium, he worked at a number of mental institutions, including the Bloomingdale Asylum in New York and Danvers State Hospital in Massachusetts. He taught courses in neurology, medical jurisprudence, and hygiene at Rush Medical College and at the College of Physicians and Surgeons in Chicago. The Kenilworth Sanitarium, also known as the Sanger Brown Sanitarium, catered to such wealthy patients as Mary McKinney. 
In fact, prominent Chicagoans declared by a judge to require institutional treatment were routinely committed to the facility. There they had access to modern conveniences, elevators, private baths, electric lighting, and telephones. The three-story structure was situated on 10 acres of property in Wilmette, six miles north of Chicago. The question on everyone's mind was what illness had necessitated Mrs. McKinney's removal from Alito? State's attorney William J. Graham served Dr. Brown with papers requesting information on her medical condition. Brown, however, refused to grant Graham an interview or even discuss her prognosis. He claimed his patients had, quote, perfect immunity from the outside world. Without permission from Archibald McKinney or an appointed guardian, Brown would say nothing, not even to McKinney's attorney, George A. Cook. Graham suspected it was a ploy to obstruct justice. Meanwhile, the press speculated as to Mary McKinney's illness. Her mind was failing, the papers reported. Articles emphasized that insanity ran in her family. Her brother and a cousin had already been institutionalized. Treatment for mental illness had been undergoing a transformation since the mid-19th century. Originally, asylums and hospitals operated according to the idea that all mental illness could be cured and patients returned to society to lead productive lives. As medical discoveries rapidly increased, researchers began to search for biological causes of mental illness. A new generation of psychiatrists turned to the laboratory, ultimately hoping to develop cures for psychiatric disorders. Scientists used clinical observation, autopsies, and laboratory tests to try to find physical causes for mental illness. German psychiatrist research led to the recognition and description of disorders such as bipolar disorder and dementia praecox, now known as schizophrenia. Although they stayed abreast of these discoveries, American psychiatrists did not make notable contributions to the field until the 1890s. Experiments, however, did not lead to definitive causes about the cause of mental illness. Scientists then turned to genetics for explanations. They postulated that parents could pass mental disorders to their children. Moral insanity, or so-called immoral behaviors, such as alcoholism and venereal disease, could produce weakened offspring, they warned. The wealthy and well-born were also susceptible to certain disorders, according to some psychiatrists. The mechanization of the industrial age had induced nervousness, particularly in women. Their physiology, specifically their reproductive systems, made them prone to hysteria. Psychiatrists grouped these symptoms and more under the label of neurasthenia. Symptoms included headaches, insomnia, depression, indigestion, anxiety, disturbances of sleep, and pain. The Kenilworth Sanitarium likely admitted its share of neurasthenic patients. Doctors prescribed a strict regimen of bed rest, isolation, massage, and electrotherapy, along with a protein-rich diet. Exposure to nature was also considered beneficial. Of course, only the wealthy could take complete advantage of these types of treatments. Chronic mental illness also presented a problem because recovery could take years, and some patients were incurable. Overcrowded and understaffed hospitals resulted in patient abuse and neglect. In order to free up more beds and stretch their limited resources, hospitals often discharge patients who failed to improve or recover. Society typically viewed chronically mentally ill people as a drain on taxpayers. Partly in response to this criticism, administrators began to imagine different approaches to housing patients. One plan separated acute cases from the chronically ill, who were assigned to smaller, detached buildings or cottages on the mental hospital's campuses. The Kirkbride model, named after Dr. Thomas Story Kirkbride, incorporated moral treatment. 
The secluded pastoral settings of the newly constructed hospitals were believed to aid in the patient's recovery. The buildings were large, featuring several wings. Many mental institutions also became self-supporting with farms, laundries, and trade shops located on the campuses. The Eastern Hospital for the Insane in Kankakee, which opened in 1880, followed this blueprint. It was organized as an independently operating entity. It was self-contained. Its cost, estimated at about a third of that of congregate hospitals, meant that the institution could cater to the needs of the chronic insane, who would no longer be neglected in the community. While Mary McKinney was receiving treatment at Kenilworth, her attorney was also hospitalized, further delaying the trial. George Cook underwent an appendectomy in August 1905, and his recovery lasted weeks. The hearing against the McKinneys took place on August 28th before Judge Ramsey in Alito, who set a trial date for September 25th. Then the case took a bizarre turn. The renowned evangelist Billy Sunday was holding a revival in Alito that coincided with the McKinney trial. Margaret Gilmore, Grady's benefactor, and Archibald McKinney both became involved in these meetings. When Gilmore learned of his involvement, she wrote a letter to McKinney, warning him that his presence was detrimental to Sunday's work. McKinney then approached the minister to explain his position. Billy Sunday criticized Margaret Gilmore for contributing to the case's sensationalism and for impugning the McKinney's reputations. Namely, Sunday believed she should have removed Stella altogether from Alito. The case would then never have come to trial without her testimony. Sunday very nearly faced criminal charges for interfering in the trial. He apologized to the court for his actions, and the matter was dropped. The trial proceeded with Judge Emery C. Graves presiding. The prosecution, consisting of William J. Graham and L.D. Thomason, intended to prove that McKinney was sane while committing these acts of violence against Stella, but that the arrest had triggered her condition. Assisting McKinney's attorney, George Cook, was William Jackson. The defense's strategy was to claim that Mary had been insane during the entire sequence of events. Although Archibald McKinney had also been indicted, the prosecution and the press seemed to downplay his role. Stella Grady even testified that Archibald never abused her. However, Graham and Thomason did acknowledge that he knew of the abuse. When concerned neighbors asked about Stella's appearance, Archibald reassured them that she was suffering from a skin disease, such as eczema. Archibald was later found not guilty. From late December 1905 through January 1906, friends and neighbors testified to the condition of Stella's body. The following excerpts are taken directly from the January 3, 1906 issue of the Warren County Democrat. Both Mr. and Mrs. Charles Finch told of calling at the McKinney home and hearing from the McKinneys that Stella Grady was of a diseased body and that the stories of the cruelty were untrue and that Stella had told them that she had been given a good home by them. Miss Josie Bjorkland, a dressmaker, was then called upon by the state. She told of having worked at the McKinney's one day in March. She fitted Mrs. McKinney with three dresses and one extra skirt. She met the girl one day on College Avenue and noticed that she had a bad-looking eye. It was black and swollen. Dr. J.D. McKelvey was then called. He said, I first saw Stella Grady at the Gilmore home, and I examined her. Dr. H.E. Morrison was also present. She removed all her clothing. She was very thin. There were 75 to 100 scars on her shoulders. The pictures don't show all the scars which we found. Some of the wounds on her shoulders were apparently made by scissors and others made by a fork. They were one eighth of an inch deep in many places. Her hair was pulled out around the edges and on top of her head. Some of the wounds were not yet healed and had been produced within 10 days. Her left eye was bruised. 
Her right hand was injured and we found three metacarpal bones broken. She could not use the hand well. Other wounds were found on Stella's body. There were 30 or 40 on her breasts, 25 or more on her forearm and three or four on her scalp. Her lower limbs were also scratched and bruised. Altogether, there were 175 wounds. There was no indication of skin or blood disease. But perhaps the most compelling testimony came from Stella herself. I was always abused. I never knew why I was mistreated. I was always left alone except once last winter when Mr. McKinney was present. Mr. McKinney never even scolded me and he never whipped me. Mrs. McKinney never looked angry when she was abusing me. No, I never resisted her, and while there, I never told anyone of the abuse. I was afraid to tell Mr. McKinney, for fear Mrs. McKinney would treat me meaner. Mrs. McKinney would also scratch me all over my body. She would throw me down, catch my breasts, and say she felt like tearing them off. Then she would act as if she was tearing the insides out of me. This would occur two or three times a week. I also had a blow on my nose that injured it for a long time. As testimonies drew to a close, attention shifted to the jury for its verdict and Mary McKinney's fate. Join me in a couple of weeks for part two, when I will reveal the judge's ruling and discuss the trial's aftermath. And that, friends, is where this tale ends. Prairie Tales is a production of the Buchanan Center for the Arts in Monmouth, Illinois. If you enjoyed our podcast, look for more content on Instagram at Buchanan Center and on Facebook at BCA Monmouth. Email us with questions and suggestions for future episodes at prairietalespodcast at gmail.com. Remember, not all history is found in a book. Sometimes it's found in the stories we tell. Just listen to the sound of the prairie, and you too might hear a tale. <laughs>